You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. My name is Susanne Kalutza. I'm CEO here at the House of Literature in Oslo. And I am very happy to be able to uh, wish a warm welcome to everyone in the audience and especially to our guest of honor, Daniel Mendelssohn, and his um, moderator tonight, Helgjura. It is always a great pleasure to have you here at the House of Literature, Mr. Mendelssohn. And an even greater pleasure to finally be able to welcome you after being hindered by the pandemic for so many months. Daniel Mendelssohn is a writer, an essayist, a critic, a translator, and a classics expert. I can't count myself, amongst many, as a longtime fan of his writing, and his book The Lost, A Search for Six of Six Millions, is simply on my short list of the best books I have ever read. This book earned him a National Book Critics Circle Award, an American Library Association Medal, and a National Jewish Book Award, to mention but a few. And now he is here in Oslo to discuss the themes in his latest book, Three Rings, A Tale of Exile, Narrative and Faith. Anyone attempting to summarize the plot of Donald Mendelssohn's 10th book, Three Rings, is in for quite a bit of a challenge. The book, while nominally being about the structuring technique of ring composition, most famously demonstrated in Homer's The Odyssey, has much more than pure literary criticism to offer. It weaves together three historical cases of writers in exile, each a point in a grand history of war, migration and culture, and sharing central themes with Mendelssohn's own life and writing, and this in a mere 120 pages. Despite its brevity, Three Rings manages to bring heartfelt life to many historical figures, some recognized as giants of literature, others fading into obscurity, all immensely influential. Their exiles informed how they saw the world and how, how they wrote. Their journeys show us even the most celebrated intellectuals fall victim to the movements of history. But perhaps the figure we get to know best is Mendelssohn himself. The book gives us surprising insights into the toll it took to write The Lost, Mendelssohn's memoir about six of his relatives who were brutally murdered in the Holocaust. By the end of Three Rings, we have read about and seen a first-hand example of writing as a form of processing grief. Joining Mendelssohn on stage for this conversation about writing, form and European history is Professor of Cultural History at the University of Oslo and my former chairman of the board here at the House of Literature, Helgi Wudheim. Please give them both a warm welcome. So good to have you back. Uh, you've, you've been here quite a few times before to the extent that I feel you're sort of part of the Norwegian literary scene, which is a very good feeling to have to start this conversation, I, I think. And, and you've been here before discussing these books that, that Susanna just mentioned, mm. big books, historical works, important works on on uh, the Holocaust and Homer's Odyssey. Now you're back here to discuss a small book. Mm. Uh, it's small. It's as small as this, actually, uh, and it's it's a reflection, I think, on your work. Maybe even the poetics, and uh, we'll we'll come back to the different dimensions of this book. But I just, I, I guess, I need to ask you because you've written a book that is partly about travel. How did it feel to be traveling again? I guess we all need to know. You've been traveling around Europe for a little while now. How, how was it? Um, <clears throat> well, first, let me say. Um, and uh, I'm very happy to be here, I must say. It's, it's a little strange, I have to say. Um, it's, uh, don't quote me, but it's a lot nicer to be in Europe than in the United States right now. Um, I don't know, it's a, it's a little odd, I have to say. It's a, uh, I normally travel a great deal, and then not to be traveling at all for almost two years is very... Very strange, actually. Um, I mean, everyone's had these kinds of experiences where suddenly, <laughs> you know, we have this joke back home that the, the people who are making the most money are contract, you know, people who fix houses. <laughs> because everyone's suddenly looking at their house all the time, 
and they're seeing all these things that are wrong. No, it's nice to be back and it's nice to be travel. Obviously, I'm writing a lot about travel and thinking a lot about travel and, and thinking about works of literature that are about travel. So, um, but We'll come back to, to, to that in a second. Yeah. I just, I just uh, wanted to ask you to, to, to set us off, to read this little scene mm. from your book. It's actually a scene that is repeated three or four times. Mm. And I'll just ask you to read uh, this version. This is the first one. Yeah, so this is the beginning of the book, so you don't need to know anything. <clears throat> a stranger arrives in an unknown city after a long voyage. He has been separated from his family for some time. Somewhere there is a wife, perhaps a child. The journey has been a troubled one, and the stranger is tired. He stops before the building that is to be his home and then begins walking toward it, the final short leg of the improbably meandering way that has led him here. Slowly, he makes his progress through the arch that yawns before him, soon growing indistinguishable from its darkness, like a character in a myth disappearing into the jaws of some fabulous monster or into the barren sea. He moves with difficulty, his shoulders hunched by the weight of the bags that he is carrying. Their contents are everything that he owns now. He has had to pack quickly. What do they contain? Why has he come? <clears throat> Thank you. So, in a way, uh, this book is, is an interpretation of that scene, of all the possibilities, all the people who can inhabit that scene in a certain sense. Mm. Can, you, can you say something? Because we, we hear about the stranger, but this stranger could obviously be, be many different people arriving at somewhere that we don't really know. Can you just tell us what this scene, uh, how, how important it is to the, to the book and in what ways? Well, the, so the book began actually uh, with material I had accumulated when I was writing my Odyssey book. And at a certain point, I became very interested in the history of how people read Homer's Odyssey. And that led me to different other writers over many centuries who had adapted the Odyssey or thought about the Odyssey in certain ways. And I, that's where I get my cast of characters for this book from, because this book is about three writers who in different ways have struggled with the Odyssey or Odyssey and themes, let's say. Um, and when I, the book in a very, very early form had been a series of lectures that I gave at the university where I went as an undergraduate. And I wanted to find a way to describe in a kind of mythic, generic way a figure who had a vague resemblance to all three of my writers, all of whom were exiles in different ways. And, but I also wanted it to be a description of someone that would also fit Odysseus himself. Um, and just I suddenly had this idea of, of writing this little fragment, which is, it's like looking at a blurry picture mm. almost, you know. But everything in that paragraph is, actually describes Odysseus. It describes Eric Auerbach. In different ways, it describes also François Fénélon, who's one of my people, and also Zebald, the mm -hmm. German novelist. You know, these people who have been separated from their origins and end up in some strange new place where they have to make a new life. And mm -hmm. I'm very... It's, for me, it's a very powerful picture because my own relatives were like this. You know, all three of my four grandparents were immigrants to America. So I, I grew up, it's an experience that's very close to me emotionally. And I think that fuels part of the book. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've, for me, you've selected three of my favorite writers, and that's, so this is the, I, I really look forward to this conversation also for that reason. But we have to start somewhere else, because it's, it is always, it's also a, a book about you. 
right, of you as a writer? Because, I mean, you've, you'd written these two books, The Lost and An Odyssey, and, and they both left you with, with troubles in a certain way. Or the, 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 the first one often almost left you with a, with a case of post-traumatic uh, stress syndrome, as you call it, in one place. And the other was a book you'd almost written but couldn't finish. And then this, this text seems to be a way of working through some of those issues that working with those other books gave you in a certain sense. Would that be right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, so if you had to sort of trace the DNA of this book in some way. So I, as I said, I became very interested in the history of how people read the Odyssey, which is a epic about a wanderer, right? Someone who's trying to get home. So that's already interesting. Um, and... I, but it's also a book about writing, you know, it's a, because one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is to suggest how these three writers' experience of dislocation and displacement and exile affected the way that they wrote and specifically a certain kind of wandering hmm. style of writing. Um, and then I just inevitably reflected on my own experience. So the, this book begins with the story of this kind of creative crisis, I guess you could call it, that I had after I finished the Holocaust book, which really burned me out. I mean, that book was five years of my life went into that book and a, a lot of traveling. That's also a travel narrative, mm. as you know. Um, and I just was sort of uh, emptied after that book. And I thought, well, it would be interesting <laughs> to start this book about how other writers have dealt with these terrible political crises with a sort of self-examination of, you know, how, how do you start going again, mm. I guess, is mm. the question that this book begins with. What happens when you're out of gas, so to speak? And so it starts with the story of this creative crisis that I had after I wrote The Lost, And I was trying to think of how to write an odyssey, which I had a terrible time writing. It was a very hard book for me to write. And it sounds like a funny thing to say, but I usually don't have a problem writing. I don't <laughs> struggle with writer's block or, you know, problems like that. So I was sort of offended. <laughs> you know, I was like, what's happening? You know, why isn't this as easy? And it was interesting because The Lost, which took five years to research, you know, four and a half years to research, I wrote actually very quickly. Mm. And the Odyssey book, which I didn't even have to do any research, you know, it took me like six years to write. I just couldn't figure out how to make the structure work. And so, and then I thought, oh, that's the subject for a book. Mm. And that's what this book is. So it, 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 it tries to connect this issue of wandering, displacement, literary style, author's biographies, and creative crisis. Because each of these three writers faced crises much worse than the one I ever had to deal with. And they managed to write these great works, mm. you know. Mm. Um, so it's a book about writing in, in, in some way, I guess. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, we're going to go into sort of the, the poetics, I think. But just sort of thinking about traveling and writing and, and the fact that all these writers that you write about, they travel not by choice. They travel because they have to. Because there's something in their home that, that forces them to leave mm. and to go somewhere else. So this is sort of also a, a, a topic that unites the, the three of them, right? The forced travel or the exile, as you could also call it. Yeah, I think uh, a thing I've thought about a lot since I worked on the Holocaust book. So, you know, I'm always sort of balancing these two parts of my personality, the Greek and Roman classics and the Jewish side. And... A thing that made a great impression on me when I was writing The Lost and interviewing 
survivors is what it means to lose your civilization. What does it mean when your civilization disappears, either because it literally disappears, which was the case with these people, or you're separated from it forever? And I, for the same reasons I was mentioning, you know, I come from a family of recent immigrants. You're always sort of haunted by the earlier place, you know. And that's, in a way, that's what I think this book is also about. You know, what what these writers do to reconstitute the lost mm-hmm. culture. You know, I I I remember interviewing a. Holocaust survivor, and he said, there's no way to explain to you what it means when there's literally no one on earth that you can reminisce with about your childhood. Nobody's left that you can remember who your teachers were and what the school looked like, you know, little things like that. It makes you crazy. Mm. And all of these people, a woman once said to me, she said, if we look like we're normal, don't be fooled. We're not normal. It made a big impression on me because they recognize it. So what does it mean to lose your civilization? And that's what exile really, when exile is permanent, you know. And look what happened to Stefan Zweig. You know, some people can't deal with it. They, They can't do it, you know. And that is sort of always in the back of my mind. I came from a family of people who successfully started in a new place, but a lot of people can't, mm-hmm. you know, because we're constituted by our culture. Yeah. You know, as my Norwegian friends here know, when Trump was elected, I said, oh, I'm moving to Norway. <laughs> and, but, you know, and then I thought, what does it really mean, you know, <laughs> if you leave your culture behind? It's a hard thing to imagine. Yeah, so you would have been at the, the steps of the House of Literature without heavy bag. With my bag. Might, might have books in it. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. Because I, I mean, it's it's a it's a, a book about it, about sort of uh, leaving destruction and and pain behind, but it's more a book about arriving somewhere else, right? It's it's about what happens to Erich Auerbach when he, after having traveled, finally left Berlin and and Germany when he arrives in in Istanbul and tries to figure out how can I. How can I be me? How can I do what I, yeah. what I'm used to do? What I can do in Istanbul, right? Right. I mean, that's the first of my, my three rings. You know, is Eric Auerbach, great German literary scholar, has to flee from Hitler, ends up in Istanbul. Luckily for a handful of German Jewish intellectuals, the, the Turkish government was Europeanizing its educational system. So they were very happy to have these distinguished European intellectuals in their universities. But, you know, what I'm struck by is the horrible irony. So Auerbach goes to Istanbul and actually his wife and his child got out and joined him. And he spends the war writing this his great magnum opus, which is called Mimesis. And it's It's a survey of Western literature and examines in 20 chapters how works of literature make, represent reality. Why do things in novels feel real, you know? And what I'm struck by is the horrible irony of this German Jew who has to run away from Germany and ends up in Istanbul, of all places, where he writes his great book celebrating the greatness of Western literature while the West is tearing itself into pieces. You know, that's what I'm struck Mm. by. And that the act of writing this book, because, you know, in our introduction just now, we just heard about, you know, writing as a form of mourning. Mm. You know, it seems so poignant to me that he is recreating in this kind of ideal fashion the civilization that is vanishing in its own home, you know. Um, So there's a kind of poignancy. But I think it was, a, and there's a famous story about Auerbach, which you know, which is that when he, he had come from the German universities, and then he's in Istanbul where the university doesn't have the kind of uh, sources that, he's used to. So he writes big parts of this book from memory, basically. Mm. 
You know, he doesn't have all the sources at his fingertips. And he, so he's literally recreating, yeah, yeah. you know, European civilization in this book when European civilization is going down the tube, uh, you know. Yeah, and when he's a little struggling with, with sort of, with loss, right? Uh, because, and this is a story that you, you that is my favorite anecdote about Auerbach because I find it so striking. He's finally left Berlin. His friends has told him to leave for two years. He's finally left. Then on his way south, he gets a letter from the German authorities saying uh, they're taking away his German citizenship. And he responds and say, say please not. So he starts his long conversation with the Nazi authorities, trying to keep his German citizenships as he's fleeing on his way to Istanbul. There's something about sort of that, yeah. that feeling of belonging somewhere and, and, and the need to stay in touch with that that I think is, is striking and moving and scaring. In the yeah. Same time. Well, I mean, it just it speaks to this subject of the power of the cultural identity, that even when your culture is... Openly declaring that it wants to destroy you, yeah. you're saying, "Please don't, yeah. don't tell me I'm not a German." Exactly. It's exactly. It's unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. Absolutely. And then just to to go to 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 your other uh, one of the other main characters, Zebald, who's sort of part of who's responding to the same catastrophe destruction right but he's from a different point of view he's a he's a german but he's 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 a child when in in the third reich uh and he leaves because he can't stand being in germany anymore yeah so the the book my book is the first of my figures is auerbach and the last is the german novelist sebald who one could say without too much of a stretch, I think, is also a victim of World War II mm. in a funny way. So he's just a baby during the war. He has no guilt, whatever. But he, like many Germans of his generation, was possessed by a kind of sense of inherited guilt and went to England and never came back. But so many of his books, in fact, all of his books, I think, are haunted yeah. by the war in some way. You know, you just feel this crushing presence in this way that's quite never quite articulate you know very rarely articulate very rarely is the war named the holocaust is never named you know people talk around it but they don't actually talk about it you know it's and yet you feel that these two men who couldn't be more different in many ways are victims of the same yeah. catastrophe and both are affected by it in ways that drive them away from the mother country for totally different reasons, but it amounts to the same thing. And not accidentally, to go back to your original question about travel, the famous thing about Zebald's novels, and anyone here who has read them will instantly know this, the characters in his novels are displayed, you know, they're always recovering from nervous breakdowns and taking long walks and g going from one place to the other and revisiting places where they grew up. And, you know, this sense of um, uh, unsettled, uh, constant motion that never achieves anything, I would say, mm. is really what you feel mm. reading these novels. And I think it's a kind of projection. Yeah. But then between these two authors that are sort of two sides of the coin of the of the Third Reich, of the German disaster, of the Stunde Null, everything, um, of the Holocaust not least, you insert this this third author that comes from a completely different context, completely different part of history, uh, 17th century uh, uh, French writer uh, of uh, one of the most stunning but also slightly unreadable books of, of uh, European literature, The Telemaque by Fenelon. Uh, so how on earth did he... I can see sort of the, the connection to Homer, but how did he end up there in the middle of the book? Well, because the, the, the important thing that I ought to have said about Auerbach is that the first chapter of his great masterwork is about the Odyssey, which he chooses as an example 
of a certain way of narrating a story, which turns out to be the way of narrating a story that I finally used to write my book after I couldn't write my book. Um, so, and that in the work of Zabald, and particularly this one book, which also has rings in the title called The Rings of Saturn, uh, there are these allusions to the Odyssey, different kinds of allusions to the Odyssey. So all three of my authors are also in some way haunted by the Odyssey as a kind of master text. But the middle author, Fenelon, so Fenelon was the tutor to the grandson of Louis XIV. They thought, unfortunately, he died uh, quite young, unfortunately for France. Um, and... Fenelon was an archbishop, a Catholic archbishop, an extremely educated and polished person. And for this young boy, the Duke of Burgundy, he wrote this mad kind of fan fiction based on the Odyssey called The Adventures of Telemaque. Telemaque is the son of Odysseus. So he invents all these new adventures for this young boy, and clearly they're supposed to be morally and ethically instructive, you know, where this boy is learning how to be a good king and what does a bad king look like. It's very obvious from reading between the lines that Louis himself is being held up as a model of a bad king. <laughs> and Louis was no dope. So Fenelon gets exiled to the north of France and never comes back to Versailles. But as you know, as a, as a professor of intellectual history, this is the best-selling book in Europe for 100 years <laughs> and is unbelievably influential in the Enlightenment, you know, because it's all about what a just king should look like and the king must take care of the people and it influenced the French Enlightenment. It, I know it that it influenced Thomas Jefferson and the founding uh, founders of the United States. Hugely mm. influential. In Rousseau's book, Emile, the book that Emile is reading, is Telemach, right? So, and I, and I sort of love this guy, you know. And, but because my book is also about figuring out how to tell a story, what I love about Fenelon and his book is he creates this whole crazy new rings within the Odyssey itself, but in such a way that it sort of doesn't disturb the action of the Odyssey. So that when his book is over, it's just at the point where the Odyssey picks up again. And I thought, this guy is really clever, right? But I think more to the point, so in the first part of my book, Ring Number One, I talk about Auerbach and his discussion of Homer. And he makes a distinction between two kinds of telling a story. One is the Greek, as the example is the Odyssey, which is a, a, a sort of not linear way of telling a story. So you don't go from A to Z. There's constant interruptions, digressions, digressions within digressions. Then it starts moving again, whatever. That's the Greek way. And with this, he contrasts the style of the Bible. And he uses Genesis as the example, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. And how in the Bible, whoever wrote the Bible leaves out a lot of things. So the Greeks are always digressing more and more to tell you the backstory and the backstory of the backstory. And that, so that everything you don't, there's nothing you don't know. And in the Bible, they don't tell you a lot. You know, I don't know what is, you know, so he says, well, they go three days to the place where he's going to sacrifice Isaac, but the Greeks would tell you where he went, what hotels he stayed at, you know, all of that, <laughs> where the rental car place was, you know. And, and, and Auerbach's idea is that it's the, the blanks in the Bible that give it its, real, its sense of reality. Because in real life, you don't know everything about everything all the time. And it's the opaque parts. So that explains the structure of my book, because Fenelon is the sort of Greek narrator, just filling in more and more information and you could go on forever. You know, yeah, yeah. the book ultimately ends and it is sort of unreadable now, but you think, oh, he could have written 15 more chapters and it wouldn't have made a difference, right? right. And, and, and Zabald clearly is the kind of dark 
biblical, you know, with this sense of things you can't know, you can't mm. see, you can't articulate. So that's how it all fits together. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, just for, for, for the audience, there, there wouldn't have been any German dansesroman or bildungsroman without Fenelon. That's where it all comes from. No, Goethe, Goethe couldn't have written a thing without that. Uh, right. Goethe could have written other things. But the, I mean, the whole idea of that, that youngster going through the world and, and getting educated. And learning. And learning and becoming either a king or just a good human being is, is sort of very much a figure that comes from from Fenelon. But I, I want to come back to the rings in a second. I just wanted to, to sort of avoid the impression that we're, we're doing with a, dealing with a very sort of Western canon here, because we are and we are not, right? Because your interest in Fenelon, I mean, there's even more pages about this, about Fenelon himself, is about Fenelon's translator, Yusuf Kamil Pasha who's translating uh, Telemach into, into Turkish or into Ottoman more, more correctly and becomes a huge, huge success in the Ottoman context, in Istanbul, right? Uh, so this is also very much a book about sort of the relationship between uh, Orient and Occident and how texts move back and forth and where yeah. the center isn't Paris, it isn't Berlin, it isn't Rome, it's, it's Istanbul. Istanbul. Right? right, that's the joke. You know, my, the, the sort of the hidden joke of the book is that it looks like it's all about Western literature and it uses three Western writers. But in fact, there's a kind of fourth ring, which you only understand the full impact when you get to the last pages, who actually ties them all together in a way I will not reveal because then you won't <laughs> read the book. Um, but... So this was, as I said, when I was writing the Odyssey book, I went down this sort of rabbit hole, which took a few months, of where I was just researching the history of how people were reading the Odyssey, and, and I got onto Fenelon. But then it's not just Fenelon, which we just described, and the influence on the Enlightenment. This book became incredibly popular in the East, outside of Europe. And it was the most popular book in the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century in a translation by the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up, right? And here's this guy, and he's the Grand Vizier of the whole Ottoman Empire. All he wants to do is translate Fenelon, right? I mean, you have to love it. <laughs> but it's so touching um, because it had a huge impact. Literally, there were municipalities that were modeling their constitutions and their city codes after Fenelon's text. You know, I mean, it was really crazy. But this man is really this non-European, non-Christian, non-Western man, is the person who turns out to, in a funny way, connect the other three. And there's a lot more about Istanbul is sort of a leitmotif of the book because there's also a lot about, uh, I think you could say, uh, how texts move back and forth between East Europe. People know this. If you're in the classics business, as I am, you know, a lot of Western texts, Aristotle, most famously, are preserved in Arabic translations. Um, you know, the the... Greek classics were being copied, not in Europe. Europe forgot how to speak Greek for a thousand years. They're being copied by Byzantine monks in what would become Istanbul. And in fact, I point this out, the greatest damage done to Constantinople during the Middle Ages was not done by the infidels, but by the Christian crusaders who sacked Constantinople in 1204. So, you know, the... <laughs> You know, this sort of whole East-West thing is a kind of a red herring um, because it turns out that Istanbul, and as I already started, you know, discussing it, Auerbach was saved by Istanbul. So, you know, this whole East-West thing is sort of fake. Mm. You know, Istanbul becomes the place where these things are saved, actually. Absolutely. And in fact, Istanbul, which many people think is an Arabic or a Turkish word, is actually a corruption of a Greek phrase, Istinpolin, which means in the city. So people think Istanbul is this exotic Turkish word. And it's actually, I love that, you know, it's actually an ancient classical Greek word. Right. 
And then it's also that wonderful little detail that the money that uh, Kamil Pasha earned by by sort of translating Fenelon might be investing be invested into building a palace, which is the palace that Aubach might come to when he uh, when he arrives at the University of Istanbul. So that's a ring. That's a, that's yeah. It's 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 a, it's a it, it might be a ring. I wanted to talk to you about this this the sort of the po- poetics part of it because. Uh, you're thinking in terms of rings, but you're also also thinking in terms of of some other the 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 text, the fabric, the, the something that is woven together. The 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 weaving of a text seem also be to be another sort of important figure and trope that goes through everything in addition to the ring. Would you agree with that? Well, that's for me. I mean, yes, I often use the the metaphor of weaving, and actually. Critics more and more use the metaphor when they're talking about my books because, well, and as we know, the word text obviously is the same Latin root as textile, right? It's something that's woven, literally woven together. So I've thought about this a lot in my own work where I usually take at least two threads and sometimes... Mm -hmm. More, it's sort of a personal narrative, and then there's a historical narrative, and then there's a kind of literary analysis, and I'm sort of braiding them together. But to me, that's the most exciting kind of a. Te- you always end up writing the kinds of books you want to read, I think, mm-hmm. in a funny way. And that's the kind of book that I enjoy, mm-hmm. where these sort of elements that look like they don't have anything to do do with each other, but as the book proceeds, they twine more and more closely together. Actually, I, I shouldn't say this with my publisher sitting here, but I think this is my best book. Um, <laughs> and uh, only because I think it, it, it achieves most seamlessly this kind of complex weaving process so you sort of can't tell where one thing starts and the other thing ends and I thought about that a lot but to me that's a kind of book that is exciting and it's exciting to sort of think about when you're right you see when you write nonfiction, and I always put the words nonfiction in quotation marks because it's such an idiotic category you know everything that is not a novel is one category I think that's so crazy. Um, You know, I'm always sort of trying to remind people that a book does not need to be a novel in order to feel like a good story. Mm. And that's a kind of a hobby horse of mine Mm. because, you know, people treat literature as if it were only novels. Mm. Um, And... As some of you know, a lot of my career in the States is writing as a literary critic. And to me, it's all the same project. And I also write these books that have a memoir element. But I don't see any borders between these categories. In fact, I was talking to a group of Norwegian literary critics in Bergen the other day. And, um, and I said, look, all criticism is autobiography. Mm. whether you know it or not, mm. you know, nothing could be, you know, people sometimes, you know, they ask me in interviews, if you're a memoirist, you get this question all the time. Oh, what does it feel like to expose, you know, these personal things? I said, no one ever asked me that as a critic, but I always think, you know, when I write as a critic, I'm exposing myself too, right? It's what you think. Um, so I don't, I never saw a reason why I can't put all these things in one book basically. You know, it started with my first book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, I want to tell a story about myself or my family. But I also think, as I did in The Loss, the Holocaust book, if you're reading this story, it's interesting to think about certain passages from Genesis. Mm-hmm. So that's a literary concern. Mm-hmm. But I just don't see why you can't have it all in the same place. No, no. Um, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think I think um, when you when you read your rings, they they in an interesting way become loops, 
because you loop back in the text all the time. I think that's one of the wonderful things about this text, that you get these, these subtle repetitions, these subtle vari- variations of something you've seen before, and it pops up again, and you're, you're sort of happy as a reader because you can remember, I've said this, I've seen this before, and now it's here again, and I'm a good reader because I see this. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a really good feeling to have. Well, it has the structure of a recognition, right. which is always satisfying, and a joke. Yeah, yeah. Right? And you, these things keep popping up. But this was, anyway, now we can come full circle, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> so Auerbach's point about the Homeric way of telling a story is precisely that it, this is how it's structured. And the famous example is there's a part in the Odyssey where Odysseus has come home after 20 years being away, wandering, and he's in disguise because... He wants to go back to his palace in disguise and see who has been loyal, who has not. And while he's in disguise, as a matter of ritual courtesy, he's given a bath. And the elderly servant who is bathing him notices a telltale scar on his leg and knows that this is, in fact, Odysseus because only one person has a scar like this. And at that moment in the story, the narrative comes to a complete halt. There's no exclamation of saying, oh, it's you, you know. Mm. And you get, for hundreds of lines, the story of how he got the scar. When he was a teenager, he was out hunting, and he rushed in front of the boar, and he got a scar. Then that story stops, and you go even further back. Why why was he on the boar hunt? Well, when he was born, his grandfather promises one day you'll grow up, we'll go on a boar hunt. So those are the rings, right? That's Mm. this sort of constant digressions within. And then eventually you come back to the bathtub. But by the time you get back to the bathtub, you know the story of the scar, you know the story of the birth, blah, blah, blah. And that's how, so when I had my crisis about how to write, that's how my Odyssey book is structured as well. I was trying to do it chronologically. Mm. You know, the book I came here now four years ago to talk about, about my father, and he became my student in my Odyssey seminar, and then we went on this crazy cruise that recreated the voyages of Odysseus. And I was laying it end to end. So I told the story of the class, then I told the story of the cruise, and then I told the story of my father falling ill and ultimately dying. And it just was terrible. Mm. I read, I'm a critic, I know, you know. <laughs> I, I read, I had 600 pages, and it's like, this is not working. It was so frustrating. And then a friend of mine said, you have to, you can't, you have to be like Homer. You know, you have to insert one story inside the, the other. Mm-hmm. So I used the class as the main story, and then these other stories sort of fit inside. And that, to me, you know, I'm glad you have this reaction, because... There is a lovely, when you're reading this kind of narrative, which is called ring composition, which is where the title of this new book comes from. That's, what, that's the formal term that classicists use uh, in English. No matter how much you digress, when you come back to the main narrative, you're like, oh, hello. You know, it's a nice sense that you have returned. Mm-hmm. Yeah which in a story about someone returning is a nice thing. So it it becomes really layered and satisfying. You're like, oh, I know you. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's great. I was just wondering, there's there's another aspect to this that is maybe less written in a certain sense. Um, And I mean, there's, there's this discussion about Homer being sort of an oral tale being told over centuries. And you also call your book a tale. The subtitle is The Tale, and the Norwegian translation is Beretning, which is a good translation, I think. I really, I really like it. So I just was wondering, and also this, this sort of circle or repetitious structure is also sort of a characteristic of oral tales. Totally. Right? So is that also going, and, and, and also when you talk about it, you can feel right now that it's a good thing to talk about because you have these, these loops, these structures. So does it, is that why it's a tale and not the... Well, I, yeah, no, it's an interesting thing to notice. And 
So let me talk about tail first. So the English title, which we were just joking about, <laughs> because the Norwegian title leaves out part of the English title. Um, the English title is called Three Rings, and the subtitle is A Tale of Exile, Narrative, and Fate. And tail in English is a kind of emotional word, right? It's, mm. it's a... It's a rich and interesting story. And narrative is a kind of dry and academic word. And I wanted those two things to be talking to each other. Um, <laughs> and so I just think that's important to keep in mind because this is a book, as you can figure out by now, that is really worrying about what's the right way to tell a story, which I'm always worried about. All writers are. Um, but to me, there's this question of, you know, orality, mm -hmm. right? That, that all these ancient Greek stories, the Odyssey itself starts, we think, you know, as an oral a, a, a story that's told and repeated over many uh, centuries. And finally, after many centuries, someone writes it down in the form that we have today. Mm -hmm. But it begins in this very... Um, amorphous way and people over the centuries keep adding things. Look, the Greek word for epic, the word epic comes from the Greek word epos, which means a word. Mm. It has to be the same for saga, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. right. It has to come from the right. It's about telling saying, a story. Saying, it's about yeah. saying. It's about actually saying words. It's not about reading. Mm. And when you think about it, this funny way of telling a story in rings it's exactly how we tell stories, yeah. right? It's that, like, I went to the supermarket to buy some milk and I ran into my friend out on, you know, Park Vian. And, oh, which friend? Well, it's this guy I went to university with. And he blah, blah, blah. Oh, why did I go to that university and not the university in Bergen? Well, my mother wanted me to go to work. That's how you tell a story. So it... It, it feels very natural. You know, it's rather elaborate, but when you think about it, that's a kind of map of how we remember things. Mm. One thing leads to another, you know, and as we talk to each other, we do this. So it seems very natural. When I was growing up, I, I describe in my Holocaust book, my grandfather, who was a great storyteller, and a person who didn't get to have an education, but was a very sophisticated narrator and told wonderful stories. And this was how he told stories. Mm. You know, he would start talking about family history and then one story would lead to another story. And, you know, going further back in time, explaining why these people hated each other. And, blah, blah. and then when I went to university and studied Greek and Latin, I, I thought my grandfather had invented this way of telling a story. And it turned out Homer invented it, you know. But it, it's because a good storyteller knows it's a useful way to tell a story, yeah. right? And it looks, this is how we remember things. So it's kind of primal, I think. Yeah, yeah. Right. Just, um, we don't have that much time left. And I need to talk to you about something else that is sort of, is it maybe a bit darker in a certain sense. Um, and it, it might have to do with also the title of your book when you talk about fate. So um, what, is, what does faith mean here, right? Because there's, there's, there, you describe many coincidences mm -hmm. and you point out that Sebald's uh, life is a, is a life of non-coincidences because nothing ever fits, which I think is a wonderful description. But, but there's, there's something about the view of history, what happens in history, what is history? Uh, when you talk about, think about it as faith, as several fates, as, as these fates woven together and as a history of destruction in a certain sense. Yeah. Well, so there's an, a, another element of the book is, is the result of uh, years of thinking about the sort of strangeness of history. So as we mentioned that, you know, throughout this new book, there are these moments 
where these three writers who seem so different that they turn out to have these strange moments of contact where things from the life of one writer start to reappear in the life of the other writer. And you've already alluded to the fact that the, the guy who translated Fenelon built a house with all the money he made from his translation. And that was the house that 70 years later, Auerbach found refuge in, you know, which when I learned that, I literally thought I have to write a book yeah. where that's the end of the book. <laughs> yeah. No, I did. Yeah. And I just had to then spend five years figuring out <laughs> the first hundred and ninety pages. But so this is all an outgrowth of some thinking I did when I was writing The Lost, because as those of you know who have read it, the most amazing coincidences kept happening during the five years I was researching. I mean, you, mm. if it, you put it in a novel, no one would believe it. Mm. You know, I mean, just the most amazing things. I, I'm in the library in Tel Aviv at the Family Research Center, and I'm talking to the woman, and she's asking me why, what I'm researching, and I start saying, well, my, I grew up in New York, and my family members died in the Holocaust, and oh, we're in New York, blah, blah, blah. It turns out she's this long-lost relative I haven't seen since 1965. <laughs> who was my grandfather's closest friend, and we had lost track of her. And, like, and, and, so, and then many other things, and they're in the book. And I thought a lot about this, and people kept, I would tell these stories, and I was afraid people wouldn't believe me, mm. you know. And I thought, you know, it got me thinking about, you know, I call it fate mm. in the title of it, like the, the, the way that in real life, Things are unbelievable because they are too much like a work of literature. And yet we want our work of literature to seem real. That was the whole point of Auerbach's book. How does, you know, how does literature make things real by leaving things out, right? But now in real life, these amazing coincidences come and you say, oh, it's like a novel. So one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is sort of figure out or present the reader, or remind the reader, you know, that of the, the kind of paradox of a certain kind of realistic literature, which is you want it to feel real. What does that mean? You want it to feel the way life happens, which is accidental. Things happen, sometimes they have a reason, sometimes they don't, and you say, oh, that's very real. But of course, in a novel, it's not an accident. The writer is making it happen. And in this book, I'm sort of making things happen. These coincidences are there because I noticed them and I'm designing the book so that when you get to the page at the end where Auerbach's walking in the house, you now know whose house it was. Auerbach never knew that, right? So this sort of tension between, but all these things happened. I didn't make them up. But I've crafted the narrative in a way that makes you aware of them. Mm. See, I could very well have left them out, and you would not know, and you would not care. Mm. So that's what I mean by fate. It's kind of a jo also fate, by the way, in English, also comes from the Latin word fare, which means the same thing as saga and the same thing as epos. It means something you say. So I'm sort of struggling with the idea of, you know, history versus a good story. Right. And yet sometimes history creates stories that are so symmetrical and perfect, you don't believe them. Right. Right? So what does that mean if you're a writer? You want people to believe you, mm. and yet they won't if you tell the truth. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. And that, if I had made up a story about a refugee who's interested in the Odyssey, who's saved because he comes as a refugee and lives in a house that was built by a person who translated the best-selling Odyssey-based fan fiction in history, you would think that's ridiculous. Mm. But it happened. There's other stuff, you know, oh, yeah. connections between Fenelon and Proust mm. and, you know, all kinds of things. But partly they're there because they're happened, but partly they're there because I noticed them and I put them in the book. Right, right. 
And that's fate. So fate is real, but it's also me. (laughs) Or any author, so to speak, you know. Yeah, yeah. So finally, I wanted to sort of uh, take a moment to sort of think about um, sort of future in your text, because these are people that are haunted by different pasts. But they're all also sort of in the working with building certain futures. I mean, uh, Auerbach is salvaging European culture from from national socialism. Uh, Fenelon is trying to to sort of educate the best possible king. Unclear if Sebald has a future project like that. Uh, but sort of, how do you how do you would you think about this? How do you think about writing as as an activity that deals with the past but is directed to the future and and even our future in a certain sense? Well, I think, I mean, that's a question I would answer as a classicist, mm-hmm. you know, because every, you never know, you know, I have an editor friend, friend who says, everything you write, it's like putting a message in a bottle and throwing it in the ocean. You don't know what the future is. And I think it's, I'm very aware of that because I study ancient literature and, you know, 97% of which is vanished, you know, um, and a lot of what survived, survived by accident. Mm. And so I'm aware in an ironic way that, you know, we may think we're writing for the future, mm. but the future may not know we ever existed. Um, and that's something I just take for granted. So you can only write with hope. Mm. I think I think everyone who writes is a is a great optimist in some way. You know, you just you hope for the best, and you you know, I I my actual special I probably shouldn't admit this. My actual specialty as a classicist is not Homer; it's Greek tragedy. <laughs> um, and in if you study Euripides, which I did, there's two. We have more plays of Euripides than anybody else. So there are three great playwrights, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. And already by the end of ancient times, they about seven plays by each had become canonical. They were taught in schools, so they were copied a lot, and that's why they survived, because they were used for school. So, okay. Of Euripides, we have 10 more plays than anybody else. Why? Because a manuscript accidentally survived. Of, it was from an alphabetical listing of Euripides' plays. And E through K survived. They are not that good. You know, <laughs> they weren't the canonical. They just happened to survive in a random alphabetical selection. The other ones are the best, you know, the best seven of each. And that tells you a lot about the future, you know. Here we think we know what we're doing. You know, we talk about, I know this as a critic, you talk about, you know, the great this. I'm aware of this because I study literary history. Mm-hmm. People who were the most important writers, a hundred, Fontana, Theodor Fontana, the most popular German writer. No one reads Fontana now. You know, well, I read <laughs> I read Fontana <laughs> because they pay me to read Fontana. You know, no, but you know what I mean? I mean, these things, you know, you have to have a kind of sense of perspective. So I'm reluctant to talk about the future because I know too much about the past. Mm. But, but we do it anyway mm. because you hope that people will read it. Mm. That's the best we can do, mm. I think. You know, look yeah. at Auerbach. Auerbach writing this book in 1942, remember, no one knew in 1942 that the National Socialists were not going to prevail. So that's an act of hope, I would say. Exactly. And you could say every sort of philological work and work of writing that we invest time in as an investment in the future. We do this because we hope there will be someone there who will also read Greek and also right. read Latin the grits and for also the be interesting in the ring in the composition, right? Yeah. So we will we have to conclude this. I'm sorry. We could uh, we could do this for longer. I think. Uh, I I have to say, if you say this is your your best book, who am I to sort of be disagree with that? Uh, <laughs> anyway, I think it's it's a really it's it's a wonderful wonderful book, Thank and you. it's 
for for me as an academic, it's it's uh, one of the most striking thing is that it's a, in a sense it's a very academic book. In a sense, it has it's a great sort of ideas about writing and about history, but written in a way that is uh, incredibly sort of endearing in a certain way or, or, or engaging. And yeah, I, I don't think I ever read a text like this that, that had that kind of intellectual content and still was so incredibly readable. So I think ring composition is, is something we should, we should all, all be thinking, all, all be about. thinking about. And uh, that, I hope you then will return. Uh, the, 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 the ring will, will come back to us the next Me time too. Daniel is here, which I hope will be quite soon. And, Me too. And thank you so much for this conversation and thank for this you. wonderful book that is just out. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.